all good AI needs an off button. All good AI needs a control panel. You need a monitoring tool and you need success metrics to make sure you're reaching your highest goals. So for innovations on AI safety, we'd first like to look at some analysis of fairness. Now, let's throw out a couple case definitions here. Valid AI describes the extent to which an artificial intelligence's predictions are accurate and useful for your specific business purpose. Fair AI is to say that the AI and the algorithms applied are providing equal opportunities to all, avoiding creating or reinforcing discrimination, regardless of the circumstances of one's birth. Welcome, 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 everyone, and happy Thursday. This, of course, is Talent Experience Live, your weekly look at everything that you need to know in human resources, talent acquisition, recruiting, talent management, and, of course, artificial intelligence. I am your host, Devin Foster. The topic of today's episode, artificial intelligence, uh, all of Phenom is powered by Super Slick AI, so head on over to phenom.com if you're interested in learning more. We're currently running promos for I Am Phenom coming up in 2024 in April, as well as a few other events and things along those lines. So you definitely want to head over there and check it out. Now, I kind of teased what today's topic is about. It is all around AI compliance. At first, we had new AI technology. It was soon there followed with the laws and regulations uh, to really abide by in order to stay in compliance with that. And today, you're going to learn all that HR needs to know. Now, we've done a few episodes over the past few months talking about New York City Local Law 144. We actually hosted an AI Day event, which dove into all things AI at Phenom, as well as some of the legalities around that. And then a couple weeks ago, I was joined by a colleague and counterpart, Cliff, who chatted a little bit more about the future laws that are coming, EU AI, California's AI Bill of Rights, and the executive order that was passed by the White House. Today, we're going to cover it all. We thought, why not tie it up in a nice little bow? It is getting close to the holiday and the gift-giving season. Let's give you an episode where we cover all of the new uh, litigation and regulations surrounding AI, specifically as it pertains to human resources. We talk AEDTs or automated employment decision-making tools and everything in between. So we are just going to jump right into it. Our first clip starts with Vignesh, uh, and this is taken from AI Day uh, a couple months ago, uh, which I mentioned you can you can watch at any point on on phenom.com or on our YouTube. Uh, but he really breaks down the current laws uh, that were set into place. So not things that were talked about or anything in between, but the current rulings and how phenom is uh, working to be compliant within those. So without any further hesitation, here is Vignesh. Here at Phenom, we have cutting edge compliance for cutting edge AI. Our goal is to help customers meet their regulatory obligations with innovative technologies that enable compliance at scale. Compliance in HR technology can be uh, vast and various. Uh, they can be split into employment-based uh, compliance, AI-specific uh, compliance, and privacy-based compliance. For example, the OFCCP has an internet application rule uh, that mandates appropriate record keeping for 
uh, internet applicants who are to be identified and their sensitive records to be stored and um, secured. The OFCCP also has requirements for EEO, or Equal Employment Opportunity Reporting, which di dictates the data collection and record keeping and reporting of applicant demographics. And this applies to every single job and every single applicant for every single job. So as you can imagine, the data volume is very high here. An example of a more recent regulation is the New York City Local Law 144, which applies to some very specific uh, hiring tools that are based in AI. Uh, they, it requires them to be audited and those uh, audit results to be disclosed. By the way, Phenom does not consider FIT score uh, in its proper usage to be a uh, automated employment decision tool as it does not substantially assist or replace discretionary decision making. Uh, for some examples of our innovation in compliance, let me share with you some of the things that we have implemented. Uh, we have the ability to enable or disable the use of FitScore to meet regulation uh, at their jurisdiction. We also have the ability to track and record anyone who has a FitScore and has viewed a job profile. Uh, additionally, we, we have uh, created an opt-out feature so that applicants can decide whether they're okay with having an uh, AI-based hiring tool evaluate them. Beyond compliance for regulatory bodies, getting the best legal protection means that your hiring system follows the uniform guidelines on employee selection procedures. These guidelines have been developed by IO psychologists and employment lawyers to ensure that hiring is both valid and fair. Traditional IO approaches to uh, solid selection practices involve some heavy psychometrics and advanced uh, data processing. Uh, each of these uh, psychometric evaluations require very specific statistical tests, inputs, and outputs. And these were all kind of developed for more traditional assessment procedures. Think about personality tests or cognitive ability tests. Uh, FitScore is a large-scale hiring tool that is uh, capable of adapting to situations and works at a monumental capacity. The challenge here is applying these various I.O. approaches to FitScore. Now I'm going to discuss our philosophy in AI safety and compliance. Like many high-risk industries such as aviation, healthcare, energy, we follow a multi-layered system approach to catch safety uh, concerns and issues as they may come along. Some examples of these layers at Phenom include human-in-the-loop control and data annotation to help catch any errors that might fall through our cracks. Phenom has developed an AI governance framework. We model this after a framework that was developed for the World Economic Forum. Uh, this lets us monitor this, the probability and severity of harm for all of our AI products. Uh, we've conducted a risk assessment uh, that allows us to compare our AI safety with the safety of other AI, HR AI technology uh, on the market today. This risk assessment uh, showed us that FitScore is relatively low risk and a uh, low probability of harm. 
we also identified that understanding FIT scores validity and bias is the best way to ensure its safety. Here's an example of how we did this. Uh, we looked at FIT scores performance, but not just FIT scores performance alone. We looked at it split across job family and job zone simultaneously, allowing us to pinpoint precisely where FIT score exceeds our expectations or meets our expectations or, or in some cases falls short. That way we can focus our innovations on the areas where it's needed. Now, as I mentioned, that was from AI Day a couple months ago. Since then, things have changed. I met with Cliff uh, a couple weeks ago to talk about how things have changed and expanded beyond New York City Local Law 144. We talk about the uh, Biden executive order that came down from the White House. We talk a little bit about EUAI, the California AI Bill of Rights, and everything in between. This was a fantastic episode. I know we're going to air most of it. Um, but if you are looking to have a conversation with your team, with your boss, with your boss's boss around how AI is going to impact, quite frankly, human resources as a whole, you'll want to share that entire episode. But here is Cliff and myself chatting about it a bit more. We're talking about AI today. Uh, and the executive order has been pushed out. Um, and it's really to address the, the legislation federally. What specifically does this outline uh, for organizations as a whole? And why is it different than some of the state uh, sort of um, approaches that we've seen already take place? Well, I, I think what's important for our audience to know about Biden's executive order, the, this White House executive order, um, is is first, and you said it, it, it is um, really geared towards um, federal agencies, as well as if you work with the federal government, it will apply to you um, as a business or as an entity. Um, it is voluntary or they are making recommendations for the, the private enterprise. And this is going to be true for, uh, practically speaking, um, you know, any uh, executive order that comes from uh, our chief executive officer, our president, uh, regardless who sits in that chair. Um, you know, but what it does signal is a more serious approach to addressing what is becoming a very big concern, um, both you know in the government sector as well as the private sector, which is how are we monitoring, regulating, defending, um, you know, and explaining artificial intelligence and its use across a multitude of agencies, and 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 by that. Um, and sort of by association in the private sector, different verticals of business because of, of, of the effect, the net effect of working with these government agencies. So, so while it's unenforceable um, in the private sector, it'll be very enforceable at the federal level. And um, I, think, I think what we need to now be looking at is this, at least for this particular administration, because every administration is going to have their own view of things, but for this particular administration, um, this is their view on how to potentially write legislation. Uh, you know, going to Congress and going to the House and going to the Senate and saying, um, "Here's here's a framework," a and it differs significantly uh, compared to at what you were talking about at a state or local level, uh, and we can talk about that. It also differs greatly, and I'd like to talk a little bit today about. Uh, how it differs from EU AI, um, which again is not passed law yet in the European Union, but will be in the next month or so. 
Um, and uh, there are very significant differences in how the European Union has looked at regulating AI and how at least this executive order aims to regulate artificial intelligence. So, um, so it's it is nuanced, and we can get into the how how maybe it differs from New York Local Law 144, the upcoming proposed legislation in California, California's AI Bill of Rights as well. There are significant differences. Yeah, I well, let's start up top. Let's start uh, from a funnel perspective. Uh, how does it differ uh, from what's happening in the EU, and is it going to affect competition in any way, shape, or form? And then we'll work our way down to the local level. Yeah. So I the I depending on who's listening and watching this, um, you know, I think, you know, folks may not think about it this way, but this is important about uh, in terms of how legislation gets written and who's influencing the legislation. So, you know, there are very, very large corporations um, that have been involved in talks with the White House, with the, our Congress, uh, as well as influencing the European Union's uh, AI regulation. So what you should know about the EU AI is it's a risk-based framework. So it, it um, looks at AI at four levels of risk, one through four, four being the highest, one being the lowest. One is something like artificial intelligence and gaming. Who cares? You know, you're going to play a game. It doesn't matter if something's generated by AI. You know, and, and maybe your data, your behavior, gaming behavior is being used, you know, to teach the, the algorithms how to, create something that, you know, to be honest with you, might be slightly more addictive from a gaming perspective, right? That's obviously the whole point. But then you get to the risk level four, which is, um, you know, and and we can use, uh, you know, something that might be a state-sponsored agency. And I don't want to name it because it's not really relevant. Um, but, you know, a state-sponsored agency that has published software that's used in social media framework, you can draw your conclusion on that. Um, mm -hmm. They get access to your personal data. And in the European Union, the, U, the EU AI law is going to state basically that's banned. You know, so there are some platforms that are at risk of literally being cut off of the European Union audience. HR sits at risk level three. The way that the, that the European Union creates law is they first agree on the language of the law, and then they then they agree on how it will be um, how it will be um, monitored and um, and any regulatory framework that has to go around compliance. So they're working on that piece right now, uh, and that's the piece that that it will be passed at that point. But the but the text of the law, the language of the law, is agreed upon. So that's not going to change. Okay. What I'm about what I'm telling you is net effect. You know, the EU AI law is this yeah. risk based framework, but. For for the for the HR component, it really looks at: Are you using biometrics? Are you using demographic information? Are there discriminatory practices? Have you audited uh, your HR practices for where and how artificial intelligence is, is being used? Um, so so this is this is the framework. What is the risk level that they're looking at? What's interesting about most European laws around, especially around technology, because GDPR is very similar is it really does put a focus on the consumer controlling their experience and their data. And you will see that continue um, with EU AI. The, the issue with EU AI is that it will influence other laws around the world, very much like GDPR has mm -hmm. as well. And, and this is where, you know, the, the I'll be a little bit controversial here and talk about big business 
especially big business that has a significant presence in the United States in particular, has been influencing the passage of EU AI as quickly as possible and has been working very hard to not move on AI legislation in the United States simply because it gives them a significant advantage as, as US-based companies or companies that have a significant presence in the United States and, and might do some business in Europe. They're, they're looking at shutting out European um, operators of artificial intelligence software. Because if you, if you are a software company in the EU, you are automatically bound by EU AI. And, you, and it's a regulatory framework that some could see as being prohibitive to scaling and growing and innovation and all of these things. And if there are no laws in the United States or very few or, or very light regulation, obviously, you know, if you own a very big software company uh, based in the United States, um, you're going to find you're going to have a very big competitive edge because you're not bound by the same rules of the game as they are in the EU. So this is the challenge, right? And this is the reason that our primary reason that our own Congress has really failed to act on on uh, EU AI, and, or I'm sorry, about uh, artificial intelligence legislation is because number one, it is complex. And number two, you know, you know uh, there's a lot of corporate influence in politics here. And yeah. uh, and so we've seen, you know, these same corporations pouring, you know, time, money and effort and influence into EU AI to get that passed while resisting, creating a resistance on this side. This is what's different about Biden's executive order, this White House's executive order, yeah. is it squashes all of that. And it says government has to act. And what is impressive to me personally is how comprehensive this executive order is. It's not a single page order. It covers like nearly everything I would want to see in terms of if something were to become law and we were regulating and putting the human at, in the best interest of artificial intelligence, not the other way around. Um, yeah. The executive order really focuses on that. Uh, and that's the most impressive thing. And, and I'm, I'm not so sure right now how that's going to play out legislatively, but but uh, this White House has thrown the gauntlet down and has said, um, it, you know, there is a failure to act, so we're going to act. And 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 frankly, I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. You're a human being. AI has the opportunity to discriminate against all of us in really meaningful ways. It also has the opportunity to benefit us in in meaningful ways. We need to regulate that behavior. And, and keep humans at the center of the benefit of, of AI, not the other way around. Because, you know, Sam Altman has already come out and said, the Sam Altman being the CEO of OpenAI, the creator of ChatGPT, and now Dolly mm -hmm. 2 and 3, um, image creators, has already said, and you can take it for what it's worth. I take him for his word, which is he wants AI to, to essentially replace the median or average adult human being in the workplace. Um, which means he's kind of sided with the technology versus yeah. maybe with humanity. That's my own opinion. Um, <clears throat> you know, but you could derive from what he's saying is, is that, you know, when you use the word replace the median, uh, human being, I, I don't think it's a far stretch to say that we need regulation to ensure that that doesn't happen.
Absolutely. And we've we've seen it right with the uh, the strike uh, out in Los Angeles with the, with the writers, right, where they are specifically obviously there's other things at stake here. But one of the main talking points is protecting writers and actors and actresses against um, the use of AI and replacing some of those individuals. Um, the question that I want to ask you, because you mentioned GDPR there and we've seen maybe not carbon copies of it here in the United States, but there have been from a, a state and local level uh, litigations that have been put into place or laws that have been put into place to protect the privacy of individuals. I know California is one of those states. Do we anticipate with the passing of EU AI certain local jurisdictions to follow in that same footstep and try and institute similar local laws around it? Yeah, boy, I hope not. And and the reason why is because it will be impossible to operate a multi-state sort of U.S. national business if you wind up with fifty different sets of AI laws. And 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 that you know you know New York local law. Um, I you know I I think it again it was born out of a lack of any federal guidance on on AI legislation. And I think inherently it, it is trying to do something good, you know, which is again, keeping human beings at the center, making sure AI is explainable, that you can opt out of that process if you choose to, um, and you have control of your data, um, which I think is important to all of us. Yes. However, you know, let me give you a difference between New York Local Law 144 and California AI Bill of Rights. And it's a nuanced difference. But what we're talking about here is automated employment decision-making tools. So this is the new acronym, AEDTs, is the new acronym to describe artificial intelligence making a decision in place of a human being. Now, I don't know any tool out there, I'm not saying that there aren't, but I don't know any tool in HR today that is saying, based on information, you have to hire Cliff over Devin, Right. It might come up and say Cliff is a better fit in these areas, has better skills, more experience. You know, Devin might be a good fit for these other reasons. Human being, go figure out, you know, what you want. So maybe, you know, like on the Phenom platform, we have something called FitScore. And that FitScore is explicitly used to determine whether uh, an individual is a good fit to be recommended for an interview or not. That's it. It's basically mm -hmm. saying between Cliff and Devin, you know, go interview Devin because, you know, he meets more of the qualifications that you're talking about, you know, and and while, while, while I'm not recommending Cliff be interviewed, you know, here are the good attributes from Cliff and you can maybe, you know, interview him as well, but, but not recommending it. So it's up to the human being to decide. An AEDT, Automated Employment Decision-Making Tool, defined under New York's Local Law 144, there are three criteria. The one criteria, it's sort of the th third criteria, says this explicitly, that it is the only tool being used to make a decision. Now, again, I don't know any, you know, and I've talked to, you know, Commissioner Keith Sonderling about this. Uh, he's from the EEOC. Um, and, and what we've talked about was, and, and his words, not mine, it's easy to get out of that because you just don't make that your decision-making tool, right? It's a recommendation engine. It's part of a process of things. But here's where the California law is going to differ if passed under current language. Um, and th that is in doubt right now. The, their law, the California AI Bill of Rights, states as part of 
a decision-making process. So in that definition, any tool that makes a recommendation as part of a decision-making process would be considered an AEDT and be subject to the laws. Now, the good news for all of our clients or anyone that's thinking about doing business with Venom, we already operate under the assumption that we're going to be an AEDT. And so we have audit tools and all these different things in the system that will comply with future laws, right? So, and, and obviously current laws. So if you want to audit under New York Local Law 144, we can do that, no problem. You want to audit under OFCCP, no big deal that those things are built in. So so we, and, and I think there are other companies that are going to take this stance too. Um, we're not alone. We're not the smartest people in the room who come. There's lots of smart lawyers out there. Um, just operate as if you're going to be bound by these laws, you know, because number one, ethically, it's the right thing to do. And, and second, you are going to future proof your technology. It will be already ready for what these, these new laws are going to change. So, yeah. so, you know, the, the challenge with local laws is, is they are going to serve local interests and in, the, what a lot of these laws don't consider, when we think about CCPA, which is the variant of GDPR that California put in place around data mm -hmm. privacy, and even GDPR itself, um, it never made any consideration for recruiting. And this is the challenge. Great for products and services. I don't want to be bugged and nagged all day long with my data being used to sell me products that I'm not interested in. And how'd you get my data? Like, I don't want to go on a website, you know, and, and see my data being used for advertising on another website that I was just on that I didn't give permission to share. Like yeah. that's what those laws are really designed to do. And that's a great use case, but it is becoming a blocker in recruiting because people are making the assumption that their data is being taken and sold to other companies for nefarious purposes or even marketing purposes like third-party cookies, for example, which we don't use. Um, and that data is being used in, in those nefarious ways, which is just not true. But how do you get a job, search for one online, be connected to meaningful work without exposing some of your data, my resume, my CV? You have to. Otherwise, you will lock yourself out of getting an interview with somebody. Because yeah. there's, I don't think, in, again, in my opinion, that there is any recruiter in the world right now that willingly sorts through 500 resumes over a weekend to set up 100 interviews the next week. Like nobody's doing that. The scale of our work and the data that we need to analyze can only be done effectively with the help of artificial intelligence in, in many different ways. Hopefully, we're, we are going to see a slowdown in the use of local laws and this executive order will be used as, hey, we're going to follow that because that's the right framework. Um, and, and as more recommendations come out from, you know, this White House's executive order, because part of it is doing more research, more analyzation, which is a good thing, um, yeah. you know, that that we will we will get a clearer picture of how the government at the federal level will analyze and um, and create law, specific law. Um, with specific use cases on how to use AI in uh, ethical and responsible ways. And we need that because otherwise, I mean, could you imagine, you know, if, if the civil rights laws were determined at the state level, like you would get yeah. just culturally, 
you would, and, and this <laughs> yeah. isn't even something that's a, a bad thing, uh, you know, but culturally, you know, some states are culturally different than others and the mm -hmm. laws would be vastly different. You, as a business, you would not be able to operate across state lines effectively. Well, I, I think about, you know, early on in, when the country was founded, simply money where states had different currency and operating a business at that time where you'd have to, you know, exchange things. It's, it's one of the reasons why we went to the, the U.S. dollar as a whole. We're different, obviously, but we're talking about the same thing where if you're, especially with remote work now, Cliff, when we're, we're talking about that, where you may have employees who are based in separate states. You may be on the border. We here in uh, in uh, just outside of Philadelphia have employees who are from New Jersey who commute on a regular basis and things like that. It opens up a huge, huge can of worms. Um, but I think one of the main topics that, that you're referring to, and I do see the comment that comes through. I want to get Straight to that on, in a yeah. second. Um, but uh, why don't we jump right into the comment? Actually, I, I think what this individual is, is talking about says is the slippery slope um, using some of these tools specifically from the military perspective where someone is transitioning to civilian life and artificial intelligence uh, potentially misrepresenting or misinterpreting an individual's experience. Uh, does any of the litigation today talk about this and how our technology or how our technology companies working to resolve this issue that, that I'm sure has yeah. happened for, for some individuals? I, I, the, the answer is yes. I, and I'm going to take a positive spin on this because I think it, human beings are inherently really bad at being consistent in their determinations of analyzation of data. Um, the, the difference between using a tool like this, it doesn't have the potential. Any tool has the potential to be used, you know, you know, in, in a negative way. Um, however, the big difference here is that there's an audit trail. There's an audit trail with these tools. And we have it in our platform. And that's what I was talking about before. If you want, if you get, you know, a, a notice of audit from OFCCP in the future now, or even in the future, that's going to contain some, some type of, uh, you know, help us understand how you're using AI in the process and what recommendations are being made, what based off of what data is being examined and used. Like we can do that. We can actually show that today. So, you know, I, and again, I talked to, you know, Commissioner Sonderling about this from the EEOC and his, uh, his take, and I'll paraphrase a little bit, but his take on this has been, we would, we look favorably, his word, not mine. We look favorably on organizations that are using these tools because these tools can be audited. We can see all the data that's coming in. We can see who's making decisions and we can see, does that align with, you know, uh, civil rights and regulation. If it's only a human being looking at paper resumes, you can't audit that because all you have to do is say, you know, Devin, in, in this case, let's say Devin was in the military. You know, I didn't hire Devin simply because he didn't have the skills I needed. And I looked at his resume and yes, we, we actually used a military translator and um, I have the data that, that then says, you know, he didn't meet the qualifications. But if I didn't use a military translator, it's just my opinion. And, and you cannot, um, unless you can prove discrimination, which you need, you need more than one transaction to prove discrimination. It and this is just a legal standard, right? You can't take someone to court if there isn't a pattern. I didn't hire anyone from the military ever. Well, that's a pattern. And you could probably argue that there's some discrimination going on, either unconscious or conscious bias that's happening. But outside of that, it would be impossible 
to prove without a history, a, a, a pattern or a history of behavior, um, you know, in, in terms of a hiring practice, for example, or a promotion practice, for example, um, you know, to, to say that. Artificial intelligence, these tools give us an audit trail. And that is something that I believe is going to be the difference between uncovering what I what I believe is mostly unconscious bias in people, um, you know, in their practices and, and maybe help train individuals to look at their own unconscious biases because it is a real thing. I don't care who you are. Um, unconscious bias is a very, very real thing. And, um, and, and we, and we can train ourselves, um, to be more effective at, um, at using these tools and, and this data that we're given. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And I, it, this is off topic Cliff, but I think it, it has to be said when we look at you know, folks transitioning from, from the military into civilian life, it comes down to skills, which is where the industry is moving today, where it's, it's less about job descriptions and, you know, things that individuals their titles and things. It's looking at what skills does this individual provide, which AI and skills ontology is only going to assist with, right? If you have someone who is in a specific branch of the military in a specific role, you can understand that they have specific skills when it comes to problem solving or, you know, uh, working in, quite frankly, very difficult situations, high stress environments, things like that, where they are going to be looked at as apples to apples to someone who may be coming from a traditional work background. And then you can bring the human into the loop and have an executive decision on who would be the best fit from those roles. Yeah, Am I way off? Yeah. I, because I, I, this is such a, a good point of, of why this technology is so necessary. And it's necessary, especially from a diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging perspective. Um, and, and it's important that we talk about this. Because AI tools, like what we have built into our system, we, we actually have a military translator that understands the depth of skills and competencies of each skill and competency in a, 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 a military position uh, and how it relates to the private sector. So we built our own military translator because there, there are a bunch out there. They're not very good. Um, so we're like, we could do this better. Um, but for any tool, regardless if it's military or civilian private, you know, or government, um, the average individual can ident typically identify somewhere between 15 and 20 skills and competencies on their resume or their CV. AI on average, at least Phenom's AI, is finding somewhere between 40 and 60 skills and competencies. Now you tell me if you are someone looking for a job, and and let's say that you that you are in an underrepresented community. You're a veteran. You might be you know ethnically diverse. Um, you you might be um, someone that is a person with a with a disability. Wouldn't you want a future employer to recognize more skills that you have than less? Because human beings, we are really really bad at promoting ourselves. We we do not fully understand our work patterns the way that artificial intelligence can and does. I would rather have more skills and competencies presented to an employer that are connected to their work than my, just my resume. And, that, and that's, it levels the playing field to your point, especially if you come from a protected class because most protected classes, they have not been taught the same things that you know, classes that have had advantages, um, how to promote themselves, 
how to write a resume really effectively, right? And this is where artificial intelligence can come in and say, no, you actually possess more skills and competencies than you're giving yourself credit for. You're actually not just a good fit for this one job, but you're a good fit for six others. Wouldn't you want those options? And wouldn't the employer want the option to say, awesome, Devin, like you're qualified for a lot of different work here. Let's talk about what you're really interested in, what you value. It changes the nature of the conversation. But but we do need regulation around these tools to, to, to the commenter's point to ensure that they are auditable, that they are defensible, and that we understand how and when they're being used in the decision-making process. No, that, that makes complete and total sense. And thank you to the, the commenter who, who chimed in. If you have any other questions, fi fire away. That's what we're here for. Um, Cliff, I, I want to take a step back for a moment because earlier on in the episode, you mentioned that there, as far as you know, is no end-to-end -end hiring solution that is completely automated, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. There has to be some sort of human in the loop. Does the executive order that was was passed by Biden's White House, does that touch on human in the loop at all throughout this and its necessity in, I think, that everyone can agree on? There are several passages in the executive order that that specifically call out the need to keep humans at the forefront of these technologies. And there are specific areas where we're talking about labor standards in the workplace. And you had mentioned, and I want to go back to something you talked about, about the SAG strike that's going on, about the settled uh, uh, workers uh, or writer strike um, and what will what will also be soon the UAW um, is is likely to settle very very soon um, the United Auto Workers all three of these unions have said and 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 it was a point of contention around the impact of artificial intelligence on their work and the executive order specifically calls this out and says we need to look at and examine and analyze the impact of artificial intelligence on the workforce and ensuring that people aren't being um, technified, that's a, I'll make that word up right now, technified out of work, right? Not being replaced by technology. And to the mm -hmm. extent that folks like Sam Altman are maybe suggesting is their motivation. Again, my opinion on that. Um, yeah. You know, and so, so yeah, it does. It, it looks at that because here's, here's what worries the UAW, and it should worry the UAW. Um, Tesla um, puts a car out around the world every 40 seconds. Tesla is building a car. And that's in part because the Tesla factory is a combination of both human and artificial intelligence working together to highly produce you know, their vehicles. The average Ford Chrysler uh, GM product is being, one is being put out every 90 minutes. Now think about that. I could put a car out every 40 seconds or I could put a car out every 90 minutes. In this world, who's going to win that race, that literal race to production? All day long, it's Tesla. But what the UAW is saying, and for those that don't know, Tesla, is they are non-union. They don't use union work. So they're not bound by these regulations and these laws. And this is why an executive order carries such weight. And while we want to use technology you know, to scale business and scale production, you know, you know, food production around the globe has greatly benefited from artificial intelligence. We can produce more food today than we ever have. Now, we still have a few food distribution problem that hopefully artificial intelligence will help us solve logistically getting food to people. But 
but in the United States, we we toss forty percent of everything that's produced. Like our waste is through the roof, right? Yeah. And and so when you look at these unions that are saying we're concerned about artificial intelligence replacing a worker simply to to produce something faster, is that good for humanity? And I just am, am in the process of writing an article about a role that's going to be created called the, and it's sort of created now, but it'll be more widespread, the AI ethicist, who is going to ask that question, who's going to say, can, yes, we can do it, but should we be doing it? What is what is this decision's impact having? And that's all these unions are asking for, is to say, you need to consider the human in this process. You can't just cut us out. Everything can't be produced by artificial intelligence. Right. Artificial intelligence still can't, you know, fix a pothole. It still can't build a house by itself. There are tools that we can use to, to do that. Um, you know, but do you really want to, you know, call up a plumber and a robot shows up to your house? Like that's that's not that far fetched anymore. It used to be, but it's yeah. not now. And it's scary when we think of the effect, especially on entry level work, apprenticeship work. In, you know, you know, in, especially in the trades right now, is we've done a really good job in this country of diminishing the importance of that work over the years. It's STEM, STEM, STEM. But now people are looking back at the trade work and saying that can't be replaced by artificial intelligence right now. Somebody still needs to show up my house and fix the broken pipe, you know, or install the electrical outlet or do those things. Like, so the trade work is becoming important. And what these unions are saying is we need to ensure that it stays important. Now, it, obviously, things are rapidly changing. You you just said it there. No robot is, is showing up to our doorsteps right now. How has the executive order addressed the rapid pace of these technological advancements? Has there been left room for improvement to talk about how fast these things are moving and potentially have rapid action towards them to to avoid some of these issues you mentioned. Yeah, let, let me give you a, a framework of this because I think this is important. When when you get Mark Zuckerberg and Sam Altman and, you know, Sundar Pinchard, like the, the, the CEO of Google, um, you know, testifying in front of Congress, what they're saying is they've actually called out and said, go ahead and regulate us. We want it. They don't really want it. What they are counting on is that because government moves so slow that it's just going to take forever. In the meantime, they're just going to operate with the with the objectives that they feel are in the best interest of their shareholders, um, and so so what this what this executive order really outlines is um, a few different things, which is number one the, the talking about AI research and how we need to be sharing collectively um, of, of this research because it's going to be better for humanity, better for the United States in particular. Um, you know, if we are sharing the research around AI, sharing test results um, and understanding, you know, the, the principles and purpose uh, of any particular AI based system. And, and it does demand that we promote uh, open and fair use of uh, competitive AI ecosystems. So it specifically is calling that out. Now, most businesses will say the second you start regulating anything that you are going to stifle competition. Well, it's just not true, right? If you know, if you look at let's look at the the previous example around the auto industry. Auto industry is a highly regulated industry. Some of the most stringent, 
you know, um, regulations are in the automobile industry and, and in manufacturing. Um, has that stopped a company like Tesla from being built and um, and producing cars? No. So, so there, I don't believe, I believe it's a little bit of a red herring. Um, it's a, a little bit of the, the, the boy who cries wolf when big industry is saying, you can't regulate us, it'll stifle innovation. Okay, maybe it stifles it for you, but there's plenty of small businesses out there like a phenom, like the domain we're in, where there are 400 small companies like us that are building really innovative and cool solutions that will comply with these types of regulations. And you just need to talk to us. We value the experience that we're able to offer and build with our clients and deliver to candidates and recruiters, and employees. Um, and that's where our focus is. Uh, you know, it, other businesses are more focused on shareholder return. And so you need to decide who you want to do business with in that respect, because innovation is going to happen regardless of regulation. No, that that makes a complete and total sense, and I I appreciate you you sharing that. Um, the one to to kind of put a bow on this, and the one thing that I I want to comment on at the end is it sounds like as of right now, with the exception of um, EU AI, most of the legislation hasn't had a, a tremendous impact on the human resources industry. The one saving grace I think for HR as a whole is it's strictness of keeping things organized, right? Uh, for years, or companies have to have their fancy filing cabinets, their, their ATS systems, where there is a system of record for everything in place. I think we're starting to trend where folks maybe aren't leaning on ATS systems as much. And the importance now is that you work with organizations that are auditing themselves regularly, that are staying in line, that do recognize um, that they may be considered an AEDT and they have to operate as such. Am I way off there? No, I, I think you're right on the mark. And, and I'm I'm going to raise your statement to a much higher level yeah. because I think it's in now is the time. I, I in my view, um, and where I see this going, I think the most important individual in this equation right now is the CHRO CPO, you know, VP of talent, VP of talent management, TA recruiting, those executives are the most important people in this equation. And, you know, with respect to my friends that are CIOs and CTOs, um, this decision to use, to, to first examine, analyze these technologies, um, and then potentially purchase something and then put it in place is really in, uh, and I'll just say the CHRO, everyone knows what I mean yeah. by that, um, in, in the people executives' hands. And it should be. Why? Because it's the first time in our history where these technologies have the potential to deeply impact human work. Um, and, and that means that the folks that are in charge of the people experiences in the organizations become the most important people to make these technology decisions. I, I love my CIOs and CTOs. I, I would never say that there isn't value in the work that they do, but the reality is because they are disconnected from the human side of this work uh, and they're not responsible for human performance in an organization, it is the CHRO. Um, it is the chief and, and executive people people um, that should be making these decisions on on how to analyze, purchase, and implement and use these technologies to scale, grow, and support a human inside of the work. Um, 
you know, because if honestly, if you leave it to technologists, they're tasked with a different set of responsibilities, which is to to have the biggest return for your investors and shareholders, right? Mm -hmm. And and that's going to mean left to them, it's going to mean you know using tools that that may um, that may replace people, and yeah. and that's not something that we should all be encouraged by. So so the 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 people executives are the ones who have the best interest of human beings in the organization and they should be making this decision. Yeah. The, at the end of the day, the thing that works best for the bottom line may not be best for the people that are responsible for the bottom line. Right. I, I think is, is what you're saying. Cliff, this has been a, 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 as always a fantastic conversation. Any parting shots that you want to share with the audience at home before we, before we hop off. The only thing I say is I can be reached through LinkedIn. You know, I'm, I'm LinkedIn, you know, slash Cliff J um, and you know, if you've got questions about these laws, if you've got questions about the executive order and its impact on your organization, this is my role as head of strategy at Phenom. I, I every day talk to clients about what this practically means to their business. I'm not a lawyer. I do not give legal advice, but what is the practical application of, of these regulations or suggested regulations, uh, and, and future laws, where is it going? How are we going to innovate? Um, you know, just reach out to me through LinkedIn uh, and I'd be happy to have that conversation. Thank you so much, Cliff. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, I hope, you know, anyone who does have questions does reach out to you. And in the meantime, uh, you know, enjoy the, the rest of your day. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Devin. One of my favorite episodes that I had done with, I, I've done multiple episodes with Cliff, but one of my favorite episodes was that one on AI. Uh, we even talked a little bit about, you know, strikes that were happening in the industry. We talked about AI tools and how you can have some fun with them. So if you missed any of it, course you can check the replay of this episode or you can scroll down on our youtube or linkedin a little bit and find the full replay of that episode next up cliff teased it a little bit he talked a bit about how phenom was in compliance with aedts how we are operating as such but i bet you're thinking that's great but it's just words can we see it and for our next clip i'm going to bring on james now this is also from ai day a couple months ago uh, but james really dives into how to navigate uh, ai regulation within phenom and also some of the cool features that it offers and allows uh, again your candidates to find the right fit faster your employees evolve your recruiters become next level efficient and the data that is provided to managers so without any further hesitation Here's James chatting a bit more about AI and how it works here at Phenom. Hi, I am James Schlitt with the Phenom AI Bias and Ethics team, and I'll be discussing our innovations on safety at scale. What we are looking to do today is show you how you can harness the power of ethical guardrails to accelerate your hiring process while maintaining the highest standards of fairness and validity in practice. And that brings a question. How do you define fairness, particularly in the context of AI? You could say that fair AI is harmless, impartial, trustworthy, transparent, valid. There's a thousand ways to describe it, and that's great. But how do you measure these? That brings us to our challenge and our solution here, which, first off, some principles. All good AI needs an off button. All good AI needs a control panel. You need a monitoring tool. And you need success metrics to make sure you're reaching your highest goals. So for our innovations on AI safety, we'd first like to look at some analysis of fairness. Now, let's throw out a couple case definitions here. Valid AI describes the extent to which an artificial intelligence's predictions are accurate and useful for your specific business purpose. 
fair AI is to say that the AI and the algorithms applied are providing equal opportunities to all, avoiding creating or reinforcing discrimination, regardless of the circumstances of one's birth. So how do you define bias? There are a lot of different ways to define bias based on your discipline and background. Statisticians, machine learning, and IO psychologists will all have their different contexts, and we need to apply all of these in the phenom solution. We have leaned most heavily into IO psychology for the phenom adverse impact pipeline, which starts with AI standardization. We take all the demographic data and hiring status labels and turn that into clean, usable data for our pipelines. Then we run this through a adverse impact pipeline, which takes some input processing, applies statistical and business rules. From there, we process outputs and give reports. But we ran our first 2023 Phenom Adverse Impact Bias on FitScore, and at 6,000 jobs and 650,000 applicants, over 12,000 statistical tests, we found that 97% of these jobs had no adverse impact for gender, race, or ethnicity. So what this tells us is that FitScore was moving candidates forward towards the interview stages at rates that were comparable and just across gender, race, and ethnicity, and that it was unlikely to create or otherwise reinforce or worsen pre-existing biases during the interview decision stage. There's a lot more we can do with this. For any categorical label, we can break down fit score by job families, job zones, or even individual jobs, and we can put this data into reports lining up with New York City Local Law 144 or more general EEO reporting. So what our process looks like, we take our client data, we take their time span and the general filters on employment type, we apply metrics such as Fisher's exact, uh, impact ratio, and Pearson's. And then we look at dimensions such as across job zones, job categories, so on and so forth. We compute this scalably on Amazon Web Services, store it in a cloud database, and from there, we can drive live analytics dashboards and also regulatory compliance reporting. So that covers fairness. Let's look at validity next. Uh, the problem we're having is there are a lot of overlapping influences here that make this very hard to measure. On the surface level, the recruiter looks at the applicant and the job and makes a judgment on who goes towards the next stage of selection. But the fit score is also looking at the applicant and the job and giving a letter grade to the recruiter, which may influence their selection decision. And this selection decision feeds back into fit score to help the system learn and adjust over time. Uh, so we have two overlapping selection processes. We have A, B, and C fit categorization, on top of which a recruiter makes their own selections that don't necessarily line up with our own fit scores. Uh, beyond that, there is no true ground truth here. If you or I were to interview 10 people in a room and pick one for a job, there's no guarantee we would ever pick the same person. File this across multiple recruiters, multiple jobs, hiring managers, and the entire hiring funnel, and there is no true way to definitively predict a system that's stochastic. So we've brought in the Phenom Fairness and Validity Framework, which is to say we look at our selection decisions and the employer's selection decisions, and we can measure them by accuracy, by bias, by a range of metrics. And to do this in a justifiable manner, we have developed the Phenom Logistic Validity Metric, which this is inspired by the Cleary model from IO Psychology, and we're simply trying to measure the correlation between fit score and the eventual interview decision of the recruiter. We can measure accuracy, 
just directly by predicting. Uh, we can integrate metrics for fairness by overlaying DEI survey data. And we found a rather clever way to address the confounding issue with this, which all these together, we can now directly retribute the success of FitScore metrics in predicting applicants to the FitScore itself. How we do this, if you were to take a traditional ML approach, you would simply look at the fit score, you know, a float score assigned to the candidate's job pair, and say, how does this predict recruiter via logistic regression or whatever method serves your day? Via the psychometric method, we break this down into individual tranches by A, B, and C fits. And the recruiter only sees a fit score letter grade. They have no concept of the float fit score, which is assigned to each candidate. So from there, we can say, do the A, do the really highly scored A fits do as well or better than the middle or lower scored A fits, and so on and so forth? And the results were excellent. For every 10% increase in fit score, recruiters were 58% more likely to submit that interview or to submit that applicant to the interview stage. This is huge. We can break this down further by saying, let's look at A, B, and C fits. And you know, as you see, the performance on B and C fits was excellent. Performance on A fits was quite good. And there's an interesting thing happening in the data here. See, the A fits are your golden geese. They are very, very hard to come by, very, very skilled professionals. So the difference between the worst and the best A fit is not that huge, and there's not that many of them. C fits, you could have thousands of C fits. So the skill between them and the number of them that actually get selected is a much more significant metric here. So there you have it. There were three clips where we talked about all things AI, uh, New York City Local Law 144, uh, the California AI Bill of Rights, EU AI, the executive order. Uh, hopefully you gained some knowledge. I know I did as I watched a, a couple of these clips back, things that I missed the first time around. Once again, if you wanna watch all of AI Day, you can do so at phenom.com or on our YouTube page. Uh, Cliff's episode is also there, which is a little bit more current. However, uh, you can definitely gain some valuable, valuable insights from the entire uh, Intelligent Talent Experience platform and how AI is weaved into that throughout. But if you have any further questions, I know Cliff mentioned, uh, you can always reach out to his LinkedIn. You can shoot me a note and I'll point you in the right direction. or if you feel so inclined, you can head on over to phenom.com and request a demo to see how it would look at your organization. But in the meantime, I hope everyone has a fantastic rest of your Thursday. I hope you are using AI to the best of your ability and for the good of mankind, as Cliff put it. Um, and in the meantime, I hope everyone has a happy holiday. Next week, we are going to maybe do a special episode. It's still, still up in the air. Uh, but either way, have a great weekend, and we will see you real soon on Talent Experience Live. Thanks so much. Talent Experience Live, of course, is proudly brought to you by the good folks here at Phenom, whose purpose is to help a billion people find the right job. Our intelligent talent experience platform, which helps candidates find the right roles faster, employees evolve in their current roles and beyond, recruiters achieve some next level productivity, and managers build better teams with data and analytics. And of course, all of this is powered by super slick artificial intelligence and machine learning. So head on over to phenom.com to learn more.